welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on February 10th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. When a whale dies at sea, what happens to the body? This week on the podcast, Scientific American Editor-in-Chief Marietti Cristina talks about the long afterlife of whales, as well as other articles in the February issue. We spoke in her office. So, Marietti. Hi, Steve. Whale falls. Why don't you explain what whale falls are? This article by a paleontologist at the University of Leeds in England, Crispin Little. And whale falls are when whales actually fall. They do not trip. They do not trip. These are dead whales. They actually, I imagine they fall rather gracefully. After a period of time, you know, some whales surface and some don't. But after a period of time, the carcasses begin to fall. And they eventually land in areas of the ocean where there's not a lot around them. And that's where it gets interesting. It gets really interesting. So way back in 1987, some researchers aboard the Alvin, which is a, a little research craft that has been many, actually a many-storied research craft because it's found some amazing things under the sea. This is a submersible, A submersible say. research craft. It found the Titanic, right? yes. And has been used to find many other things since then. Dove under the water um, and found this very interesting site in the middle of a, a kind of a, I will call it a desert-like area, which most of the deep ocean bottom, well, I wouldn't say most of it. Many areas are um, not chock full of life like when you look at the ocean reefs or something like that. Their, their life is spread out over more disparate areas wherever life can find good reasons to cling on. And herein is the segue to the whale falls because here is a good way for life to cling on because what those whales become is the foundation of whole ecosystems of fantastic creatures that last for decades under the seas. Yeah, that's an awful big parcel of food basically for other creatures when a big old whale dies and then falls down to the seafloor. Right, a multi-ton parcel, right? We were Steve and I were just talking about how how big are these whales or you know about even a, a bus and a half of length or even more than that if you can imagine this mass or as, as Steve you put your measurement. Right, my measurement was that any of these large whales that we're talking about uh they're they're longer than the distance from home plate to the pitcher's mound, to the pitching rubber, maybe to the back of the mound, or even longer than the back of the mound. Or, to put it in another way, to go to in a completely different direction with this this uh, way to envision the distance, it's about two-thirds of the way from home plate to first base <laughs> in, on a major league field. Which, you know, gives you a, a sense of the scale of the oasis in some of these really barren areas of the ocean for these sea creatures. And the sea creatures that arrive on them, I mentioned, can can take decades to process these whale carcasses that have gone down through a series of stages. Yeah, you, you have basically between 50 years and a century's worth of digestible material down there when a good-sized whale goes down. One of the really great stats in the article talks about the first stage of the colonization of, of the whale carcass is... Uh, some of the bigger fish come in, sharks and hagfish, uh, hagfish, for instance, and yeah. they'll they'll start going at the meat of the whale, and they may take from the carcass, oh, anywhere from forty to sixty kilograms of meat on a given day. Well, 
they can do that every day for two years right. before they run out of the meat. Right. It takes a couple of years to strip an enormous whale carcass of meat, and then the next colonies begin. So there's a series of, of life stages. Then The next one is animals that are smaller than those larger fish, and they start feeding on remaining scraps of things in the little nooks of the bone and begin to process the bone itself to bring it down to sedimentary level. And these are things like little shrimp, something with the terrific name of the zombie worm, which lands on the, the carcass, and a bristle worm, which really is like its namesake. You know, if you can imagine a comb with um, the spikes on both sides, that's what the bristle worms look like. And they work over the carcass then for another couple of years to bring it to the next stage. And the next stage, you're left with nothing but bone. Right. And this is the stage called, I'm going to use the fancy word, and then I'll tell you what happens, the sulfophilic stage. Sulfophilic, not self-fulfilling. Not so, although I imagine it's quite filling for the creatures who for are the creatures. involved. But it's the sulfophilic, meaning sulfur, right. sulfophilic stage. Because this is where anaerobic bacteria, which produce sulfur, get in the, in the course of their processing, get involved. And there are other animals as well, such as mussels, a tube worm, which looks like a looks like a, a, a pipe cleaner pipe, kind of bent up and around, a little a hollowed out, if you can imagine that. Clams, limpets, um, then scatter across the remaining bone mass of the carcass and really bring it down to the, the seafloor. And this is the part that can take up to 50 years to complete. And another thing I, I find fascinating is not just the scale of the individual whale itself, but how many whales and, you know, various sizes of carcasses are down there. The estimate in the article is is there may be as many as 690,000 scattered all around the world forming these ecosystem oases. And these animals that, you know, float in between them, cling on to one and then the next, they're sort of, I think of them as islands of life on the bottom of what can be really nutrient-poor areas of the ocean floor. And these organisms that live off them, as you say, kind of... Uh scamper from one island of safety of of uh, nutrients to the next. So there's this whole community that's living down there on these Right. Things. And and I want to tell you also, I mean, that's fascinating enough. But another thing that really appeals to me personally, I mean, just as a, as a point of interest in how life evolves in general, is that this isn't, can, this isn't some modern thing that has just happened with whales and current life forms. Um, indeed, back in 1992, there was the first discovery of ancient whale falls. You know, it was um, in Washington State rocks from the Oligocene. They were really old. Really old. This is from 34 million to 23 million years ago. And even earlier than that, there were marine ma marine. I, don't, I almost said mammals. I have to stop myself. Not because they're not marine mammals. They were uh, uh, marine life, plesiosaurs and and others, large marine creatures of the Mesozoic area. This is the area that encompasses the entire span that the dinosaurs were on Earth. And there's evidence that there were large marine animal falls way back then. So millions and millions of years back further. That set up similar kinds of communities that would take advantage of their carcasses when they right. hit the seafloor. And how we know this is we find the evidence of the old fossil bones and the old fossil creatures that had attached themselves to the bones that are similar enough in characteristic and lifestyle that we can say, well, this looks like the life stages that we're similarly seeing today with descendant creatures. And it's really interesting because it's it's been going on there clearly for millions of years. And we just found out about it. 
I, I love that about it, that it's recent and new, but also it's in keeping with other things we know about life. Steve, if you and I think about when we went to high school, now we didn't go together, but I think we were trained in a similar way. I remember so clearly, you know, after learning about ecosystems and after um, a forest might have been felled by lightning bolt and fire, then there would be a succession of stages of that forest, you know, from early seedlings to it. So it, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense that life would have successions of stages for ecosystems in any place. I just, uh, I have to tell you, I was thinking about the same thing, the uh, forest succession after a forest fire that I, it came to my mind as well when I read the article. I don't think that's actually mentioned in the article, but the analogy is so clear that it, it, it hit both of us. Right. I mean, it, I think it just shows also that life has evolved a series of strategies that are effective for propagation of itself, you know, from various ecosystem evolution to, you know, the stages that they they go on. And um, I, I love these kinds of lessons. They help me see the context in which life forms on our whole planet evolved. Speaking of which, since we're talking about evolution and the uh, the interactions of, of living organisms in their communities, we have this other article in the magazine about the the warfare that goes on constantly among and between the microbes that exist within us and us. They're fighting each other. We're fighting some of them. Right. Our I, immune systems. Yeah, let me make the connection for the listeners a little bit. You're, you're speaking of warfare, but what, what we're both speaking of is evolution of creatures in uh, in cooperation or in battle with each other for survival. And so this article um, that you're talking about, we call The Art of Bacterial Warfare. It's by Brett Finlay. And um, he writes about how bacteria actually get into life forms, whether they're, you know, ours. I think we're most you know, immediately concerned with ours because infectious diseases are, the, as a group, the second killer of all kinds of, you know, of, of people, of all the diseases that we face. So it's, it's very interesting to us how we can learn to conquer these bacteria who've been f- battling with us in our body chemistry for years and years. Worldwide, infectious diseases kill second most number of people every year. Right. For instance, a lot of our major concerns today are bacteria source infections, um, tuberculosis, for instance, which people worry about. Way back in the Dark Ages, we had bubonic plague. That was also bacteria-related. So it we really, still have bubonic plague. You're it right. just usually doesn't kill right. people in large numbers anymore because we have antibiotics. Right, with therapies, um, antibiotics, and drugs to, to fight them. So what what the scientist is talking about in this article is – getting a better understanding of the ancient interplay between bacteria and their hosts, whether human or otherwise. And what are the tricks that bacteria use to infiltrate your body, to then trick a cell into bringing the bacteria into itself, to then use cellular machinery to, you know, replicate toxins or other things that bacteria seek to produce for their own survival? And then what clues can we get, you know, finding those mechanisms, what the bacteria are actually doing, how can we then stop them at each front? So what are some of the ingenious uh, tricks that the bacteria have come up with to get inside the cells and, and wreak havoc? And what are some of the the uh, equally ingenious tricks our cells have come up with to try to fight that? And 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 what are we trying to do to you know to learn from that so that we can come up with 
faster, better ways, you know, with, with actual drug treatments or other therapies that would uh, alleviate some of these problems. Well, I'm going to answer the last question first, which is, as with many things, we seek to copy stuff that nature has figured out over millions or even billions of years sometimes. So our drugs will seek to replicate kinds of things that our body already might do but maybe needs to do a better job of through immune stimulation or others, but also through mechanisms of blocking. But one of the – here, let me give you a couple of first examples of things bacteria do that's – you know. One would like to call it ingenious if the bacteria were really thinking about it. Um, right. No anthropomorphizing. The bacteria do not plan to do these things. They have evolved these techniques that we think of as ingenious. So here's one, E. coli. Everybody's heard about E. coli and some of the problems that can happen with E. coli. E. coli produces a kind of a protein that acts like a docking clamp onto your cell so it can attach itself. Another, so, so this is one way that it approaches and at least gets connected with the cell. Salmonella um, uses a similar kind of mechanism, and it causes the cell to produce sort of ruffles in its membrane. The membrane is the outer surface of the cell. And these ruffles, if you can imagine them um, coming out like arms that hug almost, embrace the bacteria and draw it inside the cell's interior. So it, it forces the cell to consume it. Correct, by making the cellular membrane change in a way that benefits the bacteria. Shigella bacteria has another interesting trick. It has something called effectors that induce something called actin polymers inside the cell. They're chemical compounds inside the cell that create a something that is described as a rocket tail, and it really kind of looks like that, that then propels the microbe into the cell cytoplasm, the, the material, the liquid material inside the cell, to help invade a neighboring immune cell on top of what it's already done. I wish humans knew as much about how to manipulate cells as bacteria already do with their one-celled state. Well, that's true. We have some lovely artwork in the article. So if you actually look at the article either in the magazine or online, you'll see illustrations of these things that we're talking about. Right. So one set of illustrations is some of the things I've described, which is how the bacteria manipulate the cellular responses to benefit their own um, their own nefarious purposes. Um, and then another one is how do they then get around your immune system? What are ways that bacteria shield themselves what are the, you know, so that they look invisible to immune protectors or, or otherwise get around existing systems in the body that are set up to defeat them? And in answer to your, your question about how we're going to use this, we're actually testing on some, some substances that could be built into drugs. A lot of this is really early days, so preclinical work. We're just trying to determine is it even look plausible on the cellular level as, you know, have we actually figured out? the mechanism that's being used by the bacteria and the cells to evade it? And then could we take that and express it in some kind of either synthetic or naturally produced material that we could use to, you know, to effect defense? And there's also the issue of helping the neutral or good bacteria. We're just, we're swimming in it. I mean, people should understand that the cells that we think of as being us you know, your skin cells, your kidney cells, your brain cells are outnumbered 10 to 1 by the cells of everything else that's living on and in us. So we we are host to, we were talking about the whale falls, we are host to this elaborate community of other organisms that are part of us and we don't really even think about it 
but you know, your people mostly know that your intestines and your stomach are filled with bacteria. Right. Everybody's eating yogurt with right. the right kind of bacteria in it. And so, one of the strategies is to assist the bacteria that are there in large numbers, doing you no harm. Assist them in fighting off these invading nefarious bacteria. Right. I mean, and I think one thing a lot of us are familiar with from taking antibiotics is we know that they then disrupt our digestive systems after that because it wipes out the uh, fauna that are already, you know, would normally be in the body and help help you digest. So, yes, this is one area. Another another thing I like that the article mentions at the beginning, actually, is the next time you're feeling lonely, you know, realize that you're, <laughs> that you're not by yourself ever. You know, indeed, as you mentioned, 10 times, you know, 10 to 1 of your cells is, is bacterial or others that are living on, in, and around. And one of the amazing things about those, you mentioned the neutral cells, is that only maybe 100 types of them are virulent to us at all. Most of them are quite cooperative and good neighbors. We have domesticated them very successfully. Right, or they us. <laughs> right, or they <laughs> us. Good point. So, indeed, the next time you're feeling lonely, remember you're surrounded. The next time you're feeling paranoid... Remember. <laughs> Remember, you are surrounded. <laughs> Some you, of the bacteria do mean you they, ill. Yeah. They are watching you. Um, we have, we're have we running out of time, but we have another piece in there that I wanted to just discuss briefly. And it's about internal combustion engines and how, you know, we're all, we're all looking for electric vehicles, hydrogen fuel vehicles, alternative vehicles that will help us get off the oil dependence. But one of the ways that we can really improve things now in the, in the meantime, before we're all driving the all electric, all hydrogen, all solar fleet of cars, you know, in 2050, I'm keeping my fingers crossed, is take the vehicles we have now, the in, in, internal combustion vehicles, let's make those internal combustion engines more efficient. The amount of fuel that could be saved just by increasing the efficiency of internal combustion engines is really impressive. And what I didn't know until I read the article was that this is a process that's been ongoing. I think the figure was between 1987 and 2006, fuel efficiency has increased 1.4% every year on average. Now, for you fans of compound interest out there, that works out to be quite an impressive Total after two decades. The problem is we squandered it all by going to these larger vehicles that just burn all that extra gas that we would have saved. It's actually we've been working on internal combustion engines and making them better for a hundred years. Right. You're right. And in the last couple of decades, we've made a number of advances. But the sad fact is today, internal combustion engines only give us, for each gallon you put in, about 20 to 25 percent of the work back out that we'd like to see. So there's an enormous area of potential improvement still. Right. The I mean, chemical energy is converted to work incredibly inefficiently. And you can do a little better with diesel engines, 25 to 35 percent, but they're way more costly. And you've already mentioned you know, things like hydrogen fuel cells, plug-in vehicles, which we'll be seeing later this year and which I'm very excited about too. But in the meantime, we can really move the needle a lot with some efficiency improvements on current technology. And well, there's not a, move the needle, actually. Well, the gas, the the gas oh, good. needle. <laughs> we don't want it moving. Anyway, go on. I get it. Um, so we can do this in a number of ways, but um, it sums up to this, kind of these three 
key things. You got to control the air fuel mixture going in. You got to control how it's burned. So the com- more complete the burn, the better. And then you have to con- control how that chemical, you know, how that energy that uh, that's been released is then run through the system of engines of the engine itself. So what this article talks about is the various specific technology things you can do. For instance, varying the way you inject the fuel. Today, it's um, you know common to inject the fuel into an airstream and then it enters a combustion chamber where it's ignited. You could inject the fuel directly into the combustion chamber, for instance. You have to be able to control that injection very closely. And here's where good software and good engine design really enters into things. And you could do it with even – we talk in the article about a spark plug-free combustion chamber where just – the act of pressurizing the chamber causes the combustion. Right. And without that spark plug, what you wind up with is a much more even burn and a lower heat loss. And you would have a spark plug there for a backup. But if you don't need it, you just you, you increase your efficiency. Right. In case, in case um, listeners want to know what the term for that is, it's called homogeneous charge compression ignition. Um, you also can then, so that's fuel in. You also then can control the exhaust going out, which would normally just kind of go out of the car. But if you circle it back in through means of either a turbocharger or a supercharger, you can create efficiencies there. Yeah, you, I mean, can you can work use on that. That's heat. You can. It's that's energy. You can use that to recharge your batteries. And you can improve the timing of when these things are done with um, with software that can control. For instance. It's all well and good to have things exiting out the valves, but variable valve timing, which can not just open and close the valves on some automated system, but can accommodate what's actually happening in the burn, could do a better job of it. And then there, you know, there are even ideas for the future, such as, you know, a camless engine, which was would eliminate belts um, that you commonly see in today's engines to help cut friction. Right, friction is obviously one of your biggest enemies. Just the friction. Of getting your tires moving from a dead stop right. is a huge uh, energy sink. Right. And to engineers, all of these energy sinks represent opportunities to do better. And, you know, as long as we're hitting on themes of evolution here, Steve, here's another one where we're talking about a, a certain kind of evolution for today's engines to make them serve us better. And we can, you know, we can make a lot of change in energy efficiency while we're waiting for the costs to come down, for the reliability to occur in, in things like hydrogen fuel cell powered vehicles as one, for instance. We should say this article uh, was written by Ben Knight, who's the vice president of automotive engineering at Honda R&D Americas in uh, California. At this point, let us turn to uh, our favorite column, other than mine, of course. Of course. And Larry Krauts is in Mike Shermer's and, uh. I love all my children, Steve. <laughs> equally. <laughs> Who did I leave out? Jeffrey Sachs. Uh, 50, 100, and 150 years ago, brought to you by Daniel C. Schlenoff, who handles that every month. Big shout out to Dan. 150 years ago. So great to be at a magazine where you can say, 150 years ago, we wrote this. And also not have it be the earliest we can talk about because actually true. this year we're 165. And we look great. And we look great. Let me, let me share this with you. We had in the magazine 150 years ago this month. Within the past 10 years, there's been a revolution in making bread. The ancient leaven bread was made by the dough being left in a warm place till it began to ferment. 
The chemical progress is the starch into sugar, then carbonic acid and alcohol, which forms between the particles of flour and then swells them up. But great care was required in the operation, lest it be decomposed, and therefore the modern process by yeast is much more preferable. Within the past 10 years, besides yeast in making bread, we have had baking powders, those are in quotes, and self-raising flour, also in quotes, and such, and 99 families in 100 use some of these. So bread baking technology had improved 150 years ago to the point where Scientific American felt that it was obligated to cover it. Do you make your own bread, Marianne? I do, actually. made some last week, and I used yeast, the preferred method of the Scientific American editors of 150 years ago. I tell you, without yeast, we would be in lots of trouble. I also really love the idea that the new, improved, modern way of making bread was to use yeast, which our ancestors were scraping off the walls years ago to make the very same bread. By the way, we said that infectious diseases were the number two killers worldwide. Number one is heart disease, although cancer could become the top killer in 2010. The February issue of Scientific American is available in its entirety for digital download at www.siamdigital.com. Individual articles can be found at scientificamerican.com. And check out the website for the article on how new maps from Hubble show a changing Pluto. Whatever it is, planet, dwarf planet, Kuiper Belt object, melon ball, cheese puff, whatever it is, it's changing. And check the website for info on how to enter our world-changing ideas video contest. Next week, in honor of the Winter Olympics, we'll look at the physics of curling. Seriously. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.